And welcome back to Axioms of Liberty Podcast, where we dive deep into the most philosophical thinkers of our time to help you build a better foundation to better understand your world. And today we are diving back into the myth of national defense. And we're going to start with Chapter 3, Monarchy and War, by Eric von Kinnilt Ledin. Modern history is nothing but an inventory of bankruptcy declarations. Nicholas Gomez Davalia. Monarchy is a form of government rarely well understood in North America. Too many people in the part of the world, it seems, by now a total obsolete childish institution. The surviving monarchs, after all, might still play a symbolic or even psychological role, but not really a decisive political role. As a rationalist and a liberal, in the world and not in the American sense, I am also a monarchist who realizes that, combined with Christianity, antiquity, monarchy was responsible for the rise of and following the Western civilizations, which by now is slowly assuming an almost global character penetrating the whole world. Yet modern man's mind is a political rather than historical and is, therefore, hopelessly tied to the spirit of his time. The words of Gothi, he who cannot give account of the last 3,000 years rests in darkness, unexperienced through he lives from day to day. Such a person, intellectually nurtured by the boob tube and newspapers, would be greatly surprised to hear a British Prime Minister Disraeli sailing. The tendency of an advanced civilization is in truth monarchy. Monarchy is indeed a government which requires a high degree of civilization for its full development. An educated nation recoils from the imperfect vicariate of what is called a representative government. Democracy is, after all, the oldest form of government where majorities rule over minorities. It is still today persevered by aborigines in various parts of the globe. You can find the names of the ethnologists who have studied this phenomenon in some time if in my books. Democracy reappeared in a more civilized form in Athens, but when Socrates, in a truly political trial, praised monarchy, he was condemned to death. Remember also that Madagaria said rightly that our civilization rests on the death of two persons, a philosopher and the son of God, both victims of the popular will. No wonder that Plato, Socrates' follower, and Aristotle, Plato's disciple, were fierce monarchists, and that the latter, when democracy returned to Athens, went into exile in order not to suffer the fate of Socrates. In accordance with these leading philosophers of antiquity, Thomas Anquinas maintained that democracy was the least bad of the three evil forms of government, oligarchy and tyranny, he admitted, even when worse. Plato's thesis that democracy naturally evolves into tyranny was also adopted by Polybius, who believed in the Anacholiasis, a natural circular evolutionary process from monarchy into aristocracy, aristocracy into democracy, democracy into tyranny. Indeed, reading Plato's Republic, books 6 through 9, one gets an exact description of the translation from the Weimar Republic to national socialist tyranny. The historically conscious observer realizes not only that countries like Great Britain, Spain, or the Netherlands, which today are monarchies, went through republican periods. Greece and Mexico, today republics, had already twice been monarchies. Still, the most educational case is that of Rome. If we had the opportunity, given also our knowledge of history, to meet a Roman citizen in the sixth year before Christ and told him that his country soon would become a monarchy, he certainly would have reacted most vigorously, blaming us for totally ignoring the Roman tradition and mentality. Monarchy? A return to authoritarianism of Taquarius Superbius? Out of question, yet Caesar already loomed beyond the horizon. Now if we had the chance to meet with one of his descendants in the year 2060 after Christ and told him of his ancestors indignation about the nativity and arrogance, he certainly would have shrugged his shoulders. Of course he was right, but in the meantime, 
In the meantime, we are still a republic. Look at the signs everywhere saying Centenus Populus Romanius, a monarchy as among Orientals and barbarians? Out of the question, but you have an emperor. Ha ha ha. Emperors means general, and there's always have been generals in republics. Yet a few years later, Diocletian, the emperor Augustus, had a golden crown put on his head and demanded proskinesis the kneeling approach to his person. Then even the most stupid Roman realized that the Republic had gone all the way of flesh. Tacteus indeed has expected it a long time before. There are still outstanding thinkers who have a deep respect for the monarchical order, for rational as well as sentimental motives. Yet even the rationalist has to take the psychological factor into his calculations, or he would cease to be a realistic or even a rationalist. As a matter of fact, the increasing democratization of the Western civilization has forced monocrophile thinking, although only a higher level. Thus, it is not surprising that Theodore Herz, founder of Zionism, has declared monarchy to be the best form of government. But since no descendants of David survived, the aristocratic constitution of Venice should be studied in the planning of a quote-unquote Jewish state where areas democracy as the worst type of rule would be strictly avoided. History is already telling us how right he was. The introduction is necessary to understand the relationship between monarchy and war. Monarchy and warfare, yet we are limiting ourselves here to the Christian monarchy in our civilization and not discussing some abstract form of monarchy. Bear in mind that Archie is not Kratos. We have indeed to remember the words of Nicholas Gomez de Valia that without Christianity and antiquity as their background, Europeans would be nothing but pale-faced barbarians. Nor should we forget that war is a calamity to be avoided, one of many results of our imperfections due to original sin. Even if soldiers, by large, play a positive role in the New Testament, many of our saints, from St. Saint Francis to St. Ignatius, have fought in battles, still eliminating or at least limiting war should be one of the goals to be achieved historically in our time in the future. The first enlightenment produced the French Revolution, the great historical revival of democracy, a sadistic sex orgy in which indeed the divine marquis played personally and intellectually a leading role. It is not here the place to portray the revolution's unspeakable horrors, which to a broader public were revealed only in the years preceding its 200th anniversary in 1989. But in order to explain its effect on wars and the methods of warfare, it is necessary to highlight its character and role in history. It wanted to bring liberty and equality under a common denominator, something Goethe considered only charlatans would promise. Equality, indeed, could meagerly be established in some form of slavery, just as a hedge can only be kept even by constantly trimming it. In this perverse competition between liberty and equality, the latter naturally won out. Robespierre began dragging to Notor Cher Mer la Guillotine, had planned to put a full Frenchman into one uniform and all French women into another. He also wanted to eliminate all church steeples as undemocratic, since they were taller than all other buildings. The revival of democracy from antiquity, with its ideal of equality, was closely connected to nationalism, a term understood by most Europeans as what in America might be called ethicism, not to be confused with racism, which is not a linguistic cultural but a biological concept. The basic drive we have are alluding to is the craving for sameness, the twin of equality. Whatever is the same is also equal, but not the other way around. Differences after 1789 became suspect and were to be rejected, eradicated. The traditional outlook for our culture indeed was vertical. God, Father in heaven, the Holy Father in Rome, the King as the Father of the Fatherland, and the Father as the King in the family. In the lands of Reformation, the monarch, not the Pope, was the head of the church. Connected with the father figure and the mothers, the regali Corneli, down to the queens and the various monarchs. The new order now was increasingly flattened out until it became horizontal. Of course, not the people as such rule, but the majority over the minority. 
and numbers assumed immense importance, even though truth became a matter of majorities, and the bigger the majority, the truer the right answer, the ideal was consistent, the affirmation by the majority finally achieving almost a totality, hence also the totalitarian root of democracy, which stands for the politization of the entire people. Even the children, although not voting, are now educated in that direction. It is obvious that the new order could tolerate no estates, and soon the demand arose to eliminate social differences based upon the wealth and the income, rather only on birth. From this development, one did not have to wait for Karl Marx in 1794, the popular ire also turned against the rich, and some already were guillotined just for that reason. Needless to say, the new horizontalism also conflicted with the Christian tradition, which emphatically does not stand for equality. In the French school books, one can read that the terror was terrible but grand, which in view of our bottomless human stupidity, one nice day one even might say about the German national and Russian international socialism, most of our contemporaries assume that the victims of the guillotine were largely degenerate aristocrats and that the final benefits of the revolution were greater than the damages or losses of the French suffered. Yet only a few years before the celebration of its 200th anniversary in 1989, a flood of well-documented books came out which tore the mask away from the face of that godless event. Already in 1986, the French deputy Bernard Antony warned that the European Parliament in Strasbourg not to celebrate 1789, since it had bred national and international socialism. But about that time came the revelations of Francis Fruté, Simon Schama, and above all, Renaud Chateur. For those who were terrifying volume, Professor Jean Meyer wrote in his preface that the worst and most nauseating atrocities could not even be mentioned. We are told that in this sadistic sex orgy, pregnant women were squeezed out in fruit and wine presses, mothers and their children were slowly roasted to death in baker's ovens, and women's genitals were filled with gunpowder and brought to explosion. We cannot continue to dwell on these unspeakable horrors, and should not be surprised that Said was invoked in whose pornographic writings long passages are devoted to philosophical and anti-religious reflections. The infamies and cruelties of the French Revolution were such a low nature that the national and international socialists appear in comparison to these democrats as sheer humanitarians. In the number of victims, however, they could not beat them, since the world has technically progressed after 1789, and now offers greater possibilities for mass murder. The 1989 celebrations of the French Revolution concentrated unilaterally on the Declaration of Human Rights in the shadow of the guillotine, and did not even mention the fall of Bastille with its most unsavory details. The invention of the guillotine was psychologically a step in the new direction, the mechanization of swift murder. Yet the French Revolution left behind something much worse than the guillotine because it was permanent, the radical change in the nature of wars which made this human calamity more extensive and intensive conscription. The social pyramid in the new horizontalism was now upturned, and quantity, not quality, had its day. Everybody had the same rights, a truly microscopic share in decisions effective only if it contributed to the majority and also the same obligations. One could vote for a representative, but in turn a male had the duty to defend his country or participate in its aggressions, which might mean drudgery in barracks, captivity, wounds, mutilation, or even death. Indeed, a very bad deal. The draftee almost ceased to be a real person as he was dragged out of the privacy of his home and became an individual a term which really means the only last indivisible part of the collective whole. Hippolyte Taine described the results of this return to the stage of primitive tribes within these ringing words taken from his Orjanes de la France Contemporante. One puts in his hands of each adult ballot, but on the back of each shoulder a knapsack with what promises of massacre and bankruptcy for the 20th century. With what exasperation of ill will and distrust, with what loss of wholesome effort. 
by what a perversion of productive discoveries accompanied by what an improvement in the means of destruction by what recoil toward the inferior and unhealthy forms of the old combative societies but what a backward step toward the egotistic and brutal instincts toward the sentiments manner and morality of ancient cities and barbaric tribes we know all too well one of the most immediate and degrading consequences of the general military service in this time of war was the indoctrination of the draftee they were in their vast majority innocent and largely even unwilling civilians who enthusiasm for fighting and killing was very limited so then they were taught to hate the enemy degraded to the impersonation of wickedness ugliness and devoid of all virtue they had been different in previous ages when soldiers were men gentlemen as well as ruffians who loved to fight and offered their services to anybody who led and paid them well prince eugene of savory had vainly offered his services to france but ended up as the glorious military hero of habsburgs the same happened finally to baron gideon luden born in livonia but of scottish origin whose father was an office in the swedish services of london however served first in the russian army and then offered his experience to frederick the second of prussia yet rebuffed by him loden joined the largely austrian army of the holy roman emperor and defeated frederick in battle such switches were rare in my own time but not unheard of since right in the middle of the 19th century the vast majority of the recruits had only a very scant education mass illiteracy prevailed for many generations they had to serve a long time in the army frequently three sometimes four years those who had bachelor degrees ages group 18 to 19 years served only one year and received commissions and became reserve officers the idea was to have trained soldiers under arms as well as in reserve capacity periodically called to maneuvers the loss of time for all was considerable yet if one major power adopted that system it literally forced other countries on the same continent in order not to be outnumbered to do the exact same and since the european monarchs in europe had painfully experienced the numerical superiority of the french armies in the napoleonic wars and as constitutional monarchies were drifting into the democratic cauldron they too now were victims of the phenomenon called militarism resulting in the armed horde england relying on its splendid isolation was an exception of the rule but the united states politically already a victim of the french school drafted in the war between the states not only its citizens but even the foreigners on its soil although these could not vote they earned money and thus cash was redeemed by blood voluntary military service is a different matter on a lower level it might rely on the desire to fight on a higher note on the fascination of army life and on the highest on the wish to defend one's country or bring to life a great ideal in the book from which we quoted Taine, the american author hoffman nickerson wrote during the last century and a half civilization has recreated the armed horde previously a rarity it became the accepted instrument of any great military effort it has not however come alone exactly 150 years ago in 1789 shortly after the united states had sought to protect themselves against democracy for their federal constitution the french revolution began from that time to our day democratic ideas have come to dominate politics just as the mass army has dominated in war it is the thesis of this book that the two are inseparably connected with each other and with a third thing barbarism the 19th century compromise of monarchy with democracy was also symbolized by the fact that the monarchs appeared in military uniforms and figured prominently as heads of the army the horizontal agitarian order assumed an increasingly national ethic of character and the general tendency was toward the ethically unified state we were faced by the pan-germanism and the pan-italianism of the Raganatormento movement even by pan-slavism which transcended the minor ethnic boundaries hand in hand with this evolution we see in the german-speaking and slavic areas 
the rise of collective gymnastic movements, cultivating a violent nationalistic spirit and manifesting themselves in gigantic synchronized performances. This physical training also implied a paramilitary aim to impress the public with numbers. Here we have undoubtedly one of the psychological roots of National Socialism. The Communists too love synchronized uniformed mass performances. Horizontalism asserted itself visually. This is part of the 19th century's still mixed transformation. Needless to say that the new ideal, the ethically uniform state, is more in harmony with militarization than ethically mixed state. And also for the development of parliamentary institutions, Mark Twain has given us an account of a parliamentary life in Vienna, and John Stuart Mill has insisted that democracy is problematic in a multilingual state. No wonder, since totalitarian institutions need linguistic uniformity, added to this is the fact that the ethnic majority, through its party or parties, seek to rule democratically, but not in a liberal way over the minorities, multilinguality in a parliament as well as in army creates enormous difficulties. Hence, also, the hostility of the French Revolution toward the use of non-French languages in the Republic, the rise of democracy and ethnic nationalism went in synchro mesh. These two horizontal mass movements easily combined in the name of demos. It is significant that the armed forces of the Red German Democratic Republic were conscripted and ideologically drilled National Volksmied, the National People's Army, in whose name the term people appears in two forms. Yet, the monarchist nobleman Charles de Gaulle proposed to the socialist Leo Blum to transform the French army into an armée de mortier, a purely professional army consisting of volunteers. His plan, as a rightist, undemocratic trick, was immediately rejected. Such an army could be easily mobilized against the dear people and might develop an esprit de corps, which would be fully undemocratic. We spoke already about the indoctrination of draftees, which naturally becomes a very important time of war. An even greater evil is the fact that since the recruits are taken from the population at large, the people itself has to be indoctrinated, in other words, made to hate the enemy collectively. For this purpose, governments invoked, in modern times, the support of mass media, which will inform the people about the evil of said enemy, with little to no regard of the truth. The attack will be launched in three directions, stressing the wickedness and the inferiority of the hostile nation and the evil deeds committed by its armed forces, who consist of cowards, a low breed recruited from a fiendish people. In World War I, the Western Allies became more democratic. We also were skilled in organizing collective hatreds. Taking advantage of the stupidity of the masses everywhere, they could point and print almost anything even the silliest accounts were real readily believed. For instance, the German soldiers cut off the hands of Belgian babies. A Dutchman, Louis Remekers, produced in the service of the Allies incredibly nauseating etchings depicting atrocities committed by the German armies. One of the worst showed a naked French girl crucified and spat upon by bespectacled, unshaven German soldiers. Nothing like it was manufactured by the Central Powers. George Brinos described in a memorable book of the idiocracies of the French war propaganda in that period. According to Benanos, the French were told that the German bodies on the battlefield emitted a worse stench than those of the French, and that the Germans were ridiculous cowards and did not dare to interrupt the cozy life of the French poilus in their trenches. It was deceitful propaganda of the worst kind, yet during the French mutinies in 1917, whole battalions were decimated, i.e., every tenth man executed, so the war was not so entertaining or cozy at all. Naturally, World War I was no longer a cabinet war between monarchs, but already what the Germans called Volkkarenten, a war between nations at least up to 1917 when the Russian monarch fell and made America's entry politically feasible. Then it became an ideological crusade to make the world safe for democracy. As we had experienced already at the end of the 18th century, when France challenged Europe ideologically, it was interesting to see how these tensions were different on the two fronts, East and West. In the East, it was still until 1917 a fight among three emperors, and this was the reason why the old style there somehow survived and continued on a higher level, and it was still a war between gentlemen, a fact evident 
not only at the front, but even in the homelands in Russia. Craftsmen and trademen among the prisoners often released, and until the Bolsheviks took over, they earned money very nicely. Enemy aliens were jailed in Britain, France, Italy, and Germany, but not in Austria. My family lived over half a year in the Austrian prison camp, where my father installed and ran an x-ray station. And we children loved the mostly Russian prisoners and whom with we played. They taught us the Cyrillic alphabet. Then we lived nearly two years in Baden near Vienna. The headquarters of the Austria-Hungarian army, where I sported a British soldier's sailor suit with a ribbon on the cap inscribed HMS Renown. We also had a French governess and spoke French with her in the streets. Mutis mutayandis, something of the sort, would have been unthinkable in the more progressive and therefore more debased West. After the fall of our great fortress of Prismis, it was starved into surrender. The Russian officers invited the Austro-Hungarian colleagues to a banquet, which they toasted each other. I know of an Austrian officer who had a prisoner handed to the Russian his calling card. I had fun once after a lecture in America during a debate. A professor, a real leftist jerk with long hair, dark glasses, and jeans, complained that he could not understand my term, a gentleman's war. Of course you couldn't, my reaction was. One can imagine the hilarity of the students. A war between entire nations developing into an ideological crusade. The word crusade has near religious implications. Was bound to assume total and totalitarian features. Anatotal France realized this very well. The totalitarians could kindle the fervor of their soldiers more easily because they operated in a highly authoritarian framework. This explains why the German army fought well over the two years of 1942 to 1945 in hopeless defensive rear action. Yet the hate propaganda for the democracies was partly very successful. Thus, mixed with racist motives, the United States decided to put the West Coast entire foreign as well as American population of Japanese ancestry in concentration camps, which the British had invented during the Boer War. There was among them the U.S. citizens with only one Japanese grandparent looking like Caucasians and not speaking a word of Japanese, and after the final mass surrender of the German soldiers in 1945, they were not treated as ordinary prisoners of war, protected by the Hague Convention, but as DEF, which means Disarmed Enemy Forces, and were dealt with miserably. They were starved and suffered enormous losses, possibly even up to a million people. Indignation about the German concentration camps, however, played only a minor role in this policy because the facts were largely not believed. People remembered the lies spread about the Germans during World War I. Upon entering the age of the armed horde, wars inevitably took on new forms and another character. The idea was no longer to outmaneuver the enemy and just to win battles, but since this war was between peoples and ideologies to kill as many enemies as possible, whereby Wars assumed an exterminary character. The mercenaries of the past belonged to different nationalities, and once they signed up, could be employed for different reasons and operations by their employer, or even traded into another one. He who sells himself can also be sold to somebody else. Since wars had evolved very democratically from clashes between crown heads to conflicts between masses of people, entire nations became collective enemies of other nations. Therefore, Wars could at long last be waged against civilians, not only against beleaguered cities, but against entire populations, men, women, children alike. And since technology had progressed, it had now become possible to attack the hinterland of the enemy, villages and cities. Aviation had done the trick. The French pioneers in aviation made a beginning in World War I by bombing a Corpus Christi procession in Carlerouche and children killing but the Germans followed up and dropped bombs on their zeppelins on British cities and fired artillery missiles from very long distance of 80 miles on Paris. Frenchmen had to die, regardless of age and sex, and this seemed all right. Europe had fallen as low as all that. Curiously enough, it was the Third Reich, among planning aggressive wars, which desired to ban aerial warfare except on well-defined battlefronts. In 1935, Germans wanting a pact outlawing war on civilians in the hinterlands suggested this to Great Britain, which at the time had a labor government. However, the offer for such a pact was turned down on the ground that all efforts to humanize war 
would make wars more acceptable and thus be a blow to the noble cause of pacifism. Actually, all important British authors confirm the thesis that in World War II, the aerial warfare, Atrans, was started, willed, and perfected by the democracies, not the National Socialists. German attacks outside of the actual war zone were, were always retaliations. Some British authors merely shamefacedly admit this fact. Others boasted about it. Above all, Mr. Churchill. General J.F.C. Fuehler stated, rightly, at... It was Mr. Churchill who lit the fuse which detonated a war of devastation and terrorization unrivaled since the evasion of Seljuk. It reached an all-time high with the destruction of Dresden, the German Florence, with the loss of 204,000 lives and the annihilation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, although the Japanese had twice desperately asked for armistice conditions in April 1945 though the vatican and in july via moscow the answer was the infamous and idiotic unconditional surrender formula the american people knew nothing about this and during that period not only a thousand of japanese died in vain but also innumerable american boys the hatred generated by propaganda heated up the horizontal collective mentality to such degree that a war in the pacific assumed in the worlds of the American socialist leader Norman Thomas, the character of a militarized, organized race riot. The racist aspect of the war received a very concrete expression in a memorable incident. An American soldier sent President Roosevelt a paper knife made of a thigh bone of a Japanese soldier killed in action. The president wrote him a letter of thanks and expressed his hope to get more such presents. This piece of news reached the Japanese, whereupon Ken Harada, Japanese ambassador at the Vatican, decided to protest via Romanian channels. The president then changed his mind and promised to give his paper knife a dignified burial. Could one imagine one of the crown heads of Europe engaged in a similar incident? Francis Joseph using a thigh bone of a pressing grenadier as a paper knife, or Queen Victoria in such a delicate way the key bone of a Boer sharpshooter? Only a paramount chief on the upper Urbang might have acted similarly. And even graver evidence of the sheer guerrillaism that appeared in the bombing of Jespato Center in that hog that killed 800 Dutch, or even worse, the carpet bombing of La Harvie just prior to its liberation, but after the evacuation by the Germans with more than 3,500 victims. De Guale in London was outraged, but the British-American allies justified themselves, saying, We really thought that the Jerrys were still in the city. Thereupon, De Guale really hit the ceiling, butchering 3,500 Frenchmen just to get a few Germans. He went to La Harve for their burial, heading the cortege with the clergy. Nor was there any respect for the cultural treasuries of old world. In World War I, the Germans were accused of having shelled Rams Cathedral with the excuse that observers were hidden in the spire, and having willfully burned down parts of Leuven Lewin because civilians had fired on their troops. But World War II was far more progressive, which means that Europe and North America had declined for the last 200 years under the populist rule, and had reached the cultural and ethnical level of Dahomey's Galige, or Uganda's Idi Adman Dada, the raids over Germany were called the Badecker Raids because, fearing for their safety, the Allied planes flew very high and emptied their freight, more or less, in the historic centers of the cities, destroying the most beautiful things, whereas the industrial war production had suffered astonishingly little. So the hearts of Frankfurt, Munich, Nuremberg, Hamburg, and Bremen were all in shambles, but not the industrial establishments surrounding them. Some Allied spokesmen explained to the one wanted to hit the workers' dwellings, while the other thought that annihilating the German culture destroyed Nazi arrogance. Yet the blood orgy contributed very little to the Allied victory. IG, Farben, and other big enterprises functioned to the bitter end. One of the worst, most idiotic feats was the destruction of the ancient monastery of Monte Cassiano in Italy by the American army. Allies had been informed that there were no German troops inside. Since the building remained intact, a hue and a cry was raised in the United States that to spare the monastery would mean to be yielding to the Roman Catholic interest at the cost of American lives. Our boys would have to die just to please the Pope. 
Finally, the military yielded in order to bolster the home front. The Vox Populi should not be thwarted, and a political, not military, decision was made. The old building went down in fire and ashes. Thereupon, it became safe for the Germans to occupy the ruins, wherever to defend a huge, solid structure. Building under artillery fire would have been suicidal. Now, the American soldiers faced an enemy much better entrenched and protected by the rocks of the destroyed Abbey. No falling walls could bury them. The Allied losses became now much bigger, and so were those of the poor betrayed Poles who had fought with them. But public opinion was satisfied, and the war was fought democratically. Yet, what did some of the American soldiers think of the frequently irreparable losses of architectural beauty? An officer stationed near Benevento asked whether he had any misgivings replied to an American journalist. There's nothing what can be done about it. Italy is just lousy with clerical monuments. Most unfortunately, World War II had also another fatal aspect, the resistance movement. Enthusiastically applauded by the public of the Western Alliance, an exception has to be made for the Polish Armory Kowaya as well for Jewish fighters because the national like of the international socialists wanted to deprive them of their upper classes or to exterminate them altogether. With no legal armies for their defense, they had the moral right to fight in order to protect the very existence. Yet, in other countries, the occupying army had no other means to combat these sly attackers but to take hostages and shoot them. Nations but completely democratized did not engage in such activities, and only too often resistors were former collaborators who, sensing that the Third Reich was a sinking ship, changed sides. Obviously, the French resistance became truly active only after the collapse of the National International Alliance. There had been a predecessor for the civilian resistance, but after France became a republic in 1870 in the form of the Franc Retiers, entirely in keeping with the rising horizontalism. One used to have to naturally no right to participate in war without wearing the king's coat. The alternative was to sink down to a level of savages. This was somewhat different in the case of the Balkans, where the 50 years of Turkish rule and the Christian tradition had broken, and the one went to war collectively, as we painfully experienced in the two world wars. First, we had the nationalistic Cosmetudis and the ideological Paziani. One of the worst results of the democratization of wars and remains the difficulty in terminating a war by peace, or at least by lengthy periods of peace, because in a slowly democratized or fully democratic order, having fought with conscripted soldiers, one is governed largely by representatives of the people, by men who do not think historically, but politically, of history, economics, and cultural mentalities, and geography. They know nothing. Moreover, they think personally, not dynastically. What do they have primarily in mind? The will of their grand and great-grandchildren, or the winning of the next election? The returning soldiers, too, if they have been fighting on the winning side, want to see the fruits of their sufferings and yearn for a peace with maximum gains for their country. Mercenaries thought otherwise. They had their next job in mind. Moreover, Generosity is a virtue more frequently found in the small top layers than among the masses. It takes, after all, intelligence to suspect that generosity very often pays while egotism does not. Finland, in a brilliant book, extorted the dolphin. Peace treaties are meaningless if you are st the stronger one, and if you force your neighbor to sign a treaty to avoid a greater evil, then he signs in the same way as a person who surrenders his purse to a brigade who points his pistol at his throat. Yet, already in the 19th century, in which we witness the democratization of constitutional monarchies, we see the warning of Finland has been increasingly ignored. The German drive for unification of the Italian Risorgimento offered opportunities to annex entire countries and to make dynasties homeless. In this respect, the Italians made the start. The sovereigns of Moderna, Parma, Tuscany, and the Bourbons of both Sicilies had to quit. After the liberation of Selswig-Holstein from the Danish rule of the German League, the legitimate heirs were not allowed to take over their inheritance. The situation was made worse by the outcome of the German-Prussian War of 1866, which ended with Prussia's incorporation not only of the 
Selswig Holsten, but of the Hiswis Nassau, the imperial city of Frankfurt, and by no means the last of the kingdom of Hanover. This was the policy of Bismarck, who had started his life in a typical Prussian conservative and a devout Lutheran Christian, but who became a German nationalist and a national liberal, who soon after the establishment of the German Empire, the Second Reich, initiated as a nationalistic progressive the Kumpf against the Catholic Church. Yet, the real break came with the end of the World War, which, as we said, changed from a war between nations into an ideological crusade to make up the world safe for democracy. In Europe had only two democratic republics, France and Switzerland, a form of government then represented on the globe largely by South and Central African nations, enriched in 1910 and 1912 by Portugal and China. The great victory of democracy in Central Europe, its triumph in Russia lasted only seven months, and the disappearance of the three emperors created a new scene. The Democrats expected to fashion the peace democratically, i.e., by the consent of the majority of the voters and the victorious nations. Of course, if we look over the 14 points of Wilson, the defeated should have expected the principle of self-determination applied even to them. But this lovely document had merely been a bait for surrender, like the mockery of the Italian charter, since the victors of the democracies or treaties were not treaties but dictates they had to please the voters at home. Since these had been taught to hate the enemy, the dictates were in reality voted for, even if indirectly, by the agitated masses. In Britain, we had the famous Kike election, an orgy of demagoguery in which Lloyd George promised to ruin the German middle class through exorbitant reparations to make Germany pay so that the pips squeak and to hang the Kaiser. George F. Kennan had said very rightly that all evils nearly all go back to World War I. Not to the fighting, but to the outcome. I would name four reasons for his thesis. The American intervention, which artificially prolonged the war and prevented a compromise of peace. The combination of national combat with an ideological crusade, thus aggravating the issue. The mountainous, historical, geographic, and economic and psychological ignorance of the politicians who naturally, thinking only of elections, wanted to please the voters, and the intellectual vacuum of the dear people whose emotions had been wiped up to the nth degree. The bad taste of Bismarck, who organized the celebrations for the establishment for the Second Reich in Versailles, was now imitated by the clowns who had perpetuated the humiliation of the German Reich in the mirror hall of the same building. There, as in the far more important dictates of St. German in Rhine and Trianon, were laid the foundations of the Third Reich, and World War II with an admirable foresight and the loving care of all details. Needless to say that the Versailles Treaty did tremendous harm in Germany internally, but it hardly changed the map of Europe. It was the destruction of the Hansburg Empire that made Germany the geopolitical winner of World War I. Bordering after 1919 on only one great power, France, it was now the direct or indirect neighbor in the east of a partially artificial, partially military indefensible states. As His Magnificence, the rector of Brislow University, Ernest Kronman, pointed out in 1926, the time to take advantage of this advantageous situation would come sooner or later, and it came. What Hitler actually inherited from these nincompoops who had dictated the Paris suburban treaties was not only an internal situation characterized by economic uprooting of important social layers and the imposition of an unworkable form of government, but also a uniquely profitable geopolitical position due to the division of Austrian Hungary. If Hitler had any sense of humor, he would have erected a colossal monument to Woodrow Wilson. Looking back at these happenings, John Maynard Keynes, who assisted Lloyd George at the conferences, could write that the Carthaginian peace was not practically right and possible. The clock could not be set back. With our setting up such strains in the European structure and letting loose such human and spiritual forces, pushing beyond frontiers and races will overwhelm not only you, but your guarantees, but your institutions and your existing order of your society. Well, one of these guarantees was the League of Nations, which Compton Mackenzie called a typist dream of the Holy Roman Empire, and which of the Congress of the United States refused to join. Still, there is no doubt that the general satisfaction 
reigned in the nations of the victors, not only among the Americans, British, and French, and Italians, but also among the Czechs, Romanians, and the Serbs. However, intelligent Poles, seeing their country buffeted between Germany and the Soviet Union, remained skeptical. History, always immensely brutal, might have said to the defeated, since you were disloyal to your better self, to your heritage and traditions, you will serve not emperors, but exterminators in abject slavery, pitless megalomaniacs who will force you back to another slaughter. And the victors, she would say, profiting from your huge superiority in men and wealth, you have abused your triumph and have paid dearly, not only with men, women, and children, but moreover lost your worldwide prestige and possessions. Looking back to World War I, the old democratic enthusiasm for extending the great ideas of the French Revolution reappears, even at the price of enormous bloodshed, because democracy remains to simple spirits, freedom from rule, from above or from the outside. When a compromise peace was in the offering, the democratic idealists went up in arms, the left hand of Wilson in foreign politics. George D. Heron preferred even a Prussian victory to a compromise peace, which to him meant aristocracy. The rural barons of the Catholic Church and the Hannesburgs would break God's heart, whereas even a triumph of the Hollandization of nations still might awake after a long, baleful night to cosmic intimacy and infinite knowledge. Heron was greatly admired by Wilson, who made him his go-between in Europe during the war, and thus gave him an opportunity to torpedo the Austrian peace effort in February 1918, because it would have meant the political survival of the Habsburgs. If you have the conscription, the lives of the soldier are of little value. They are easily replaceable. The same holds true for the rebuff suffered by the secret German right before the outbreak of World War II, the Halderbeck conspiracy, and then during the war of their efforts through Dr. Bell, the Bishop of Chester, begged in vain to get the cooperation of Winston Churchill. The Germans had to sign the treaty in Versailles because the hunger blockade worked like thumbscrews. The hope for a liberal democracy in Russia had been snuffed out by the radical social democrats and the so-called Bolsheviks, and thus Russia no longer was a fit partner in a league of honor, as Wilson had greeted the rule of Alexander Kerensky, the new Russia, the socialist fatherland, had, 20 years later, the delightful chance to start World War II jointly with the National Socialists. Had the European monarchs ever tried to enforce monarchism either in the Second or Third French Republic in Brazil after the fall of the monarchy or in Portugal in 1910? No, because there is no such thing as monarchism. Democracy as democratism is a gnostic ideology, hell-bent on saving the world. Monarchy is familistic. The family is something natural. It needs no philosophical impulses. It represents no secular religion. To make people happy after one's own fashion requires something a little and occasionally even a lot of pressure. In February 1914, Mr. Wilson thought that the Mexicans would be much happier if they imitated politically the United States, which in turn had imitated France. This worried Sir Edward Gray, British former Prime Minister. A curious dialogue developed between Gray and the American ambassador, Walter P Hines Page. The theme was the Mexican reluctance to adopt a full-fledged democracy, which the United States, after all, had fostered and abetted in Mexico, even before the days they had supported Benito Juarez, the murderer of the Emperor Maximilian, and such was the exchange of opinions. Gray, suppose you have to intervene, what then? Page, make them vote and live by their decisions. Gray, but suppose they will not so live. Page, we'll go in again and make them vote again. Gray, and keep this up for 200 years? Page, yes, the United States will be here for 200 years, and it can continue to shoot them for that little space till they learn to vote and rule themselves. With that unsophisticated mentality, the young democracies were forced to enjoy self-government to rave about their new Republican liberty. This wording reminds one of the Napoleonic conquerors of Tyrol and the spirit in which the suburban Paris treaties were dictated. France had drowned in Europe in blood in the 1795-1815 period, yet at the Congress of Vienna, its delegates were received in great honor. The language of the sessions and discussions was French, and France left the conference tables slightly enlarged. There was no cry to hang the emperor, nor was there a public whose animal cravings for revenge had to be satisfied. 
Of course, it would be naive to think that wars in the truly monarchical period of our Christian history were a pleasant pastime. Wars were not infrequent, and the discipline among the mercenaries was miserable. Occupied cities had to pay contribution. Taking booty was accepted. Marauding soldiers were a plague. It was only in the 18th century that wars had assumed a civilized character. The fact that the generals belonged to noble families helped greatly. They had the right upbringing, and Europe's aristocracy was internationally related, although not to the extent of the royal imperial families in judging the character of their enemies. They certainly were never influenced by the mass media. One cannot imagine Marlborough being moved today by the editorials in the London's Daily Courant as President Kennedy was by David Halberstam of the New York Times. The monarchs, however, were not only international, but also an interracial breed, a great advantage also to nations they ruled because it gave them a certain distance over their subjects, whom thus they could judge more objectively. In 1909, the only genuinely native sovereign dynasties in Europe were the Petrovac Negos in Montenegro and the Karadžavlak in Serbia. Certainly not the most important or distinguished ones, the House of Saxe-Cod-Gurtra ruled in Saxe-Codberg, Great Britain, Belgium, Portugal, Bulgaria, and the Holstein Gatorops in Russia, where the real Romanovs had died out with Peter II, the Burbobs in Spain, the Almanac Holsolarians in Prussia and Romania, and the Sondenberg, Glusbenberg, Ostenbergs in Denmark, Norway, and Greece, the Nassus in the Netherlands and in Luxembourg, the Swiss Lordian Hasbergs in Austria Hungary, and the French Savoys in Italy. They all descended from Mohammed, from Charlemagne, had a drop of Jewish blood. Looking at the motherline of Maria Theresa, one comes to Kernman. Turek Tatar princes. It is true of the Reformation raised a wall between the Catholic and Protestant families, but it was sometimes broken. In spite of quarrels, wars, and denominational differences, even in as late as 1870, the defeated Napoleon III dined as a prisoner together with William I of Prussia and Bismarck in Wilsmol's castle, where the Prussian king addressed the emperor of the French as Mondechour Monsieur Ferry. Self-control, good manners, and generosity belong to the monarch. Here, we have to keep in mind that the interrelationship between the monarchs was tightened in the course of the centuries, but they also were not entirely immune to the influence of the historical developments after 1789. In other words, to democracy, socialism, nationalism, to horizontalist temptations. It was even doubtful whether Lloyd George alone was responsible for not saving the lives of the Russian imperial family. The British in 1917 refused to give them asylum. Monarch had several great advantages. First of all, one could expect a monarch to be psychologically and intellectually prepared for his task. Contemplating the intellectual preparation for some leading politicians for their task, one can only throw up one's hands in horror. Often, their looks and their gift of gab alone got them into office. A second asset is rather was the international relationships and their lack of local ties. Number three is the fact that they got their owe, their position, to no party, faction, state, interest, group, or class, but only, to use the words of Basut, to the sweet process of nature. The fourth advantage is that monarchs had the chance to act historically. It is not obvious that in democracies, where the primary problem is to win the elections and where the instability with nicely spaced changes, a sort of punch and judy show is even a matter of pride. A constructive foreign policy is well nigh possible. Monarchs were in office until they died and left their realm to their sons or nearest relative. They could act historically, not politically, in a way without time limit, hence their various political testaments. This has been aptly demonstrated by Professor Hans Hermann Hoppe in an essay which likened the democratic procedure to a small child wanting to get his wishes fulfilled immediately and protesting in tears if there is a delay or a negative reaction. A monarch as a member of a dynasty can plan for the distant future, even for generations, yet it would be most earnest to believe that in a return to monarchy, even a Christian monarchy, we would solve all of our problems. Remember the praise that the great monarchist Charles Murius bestowed upon this form of government. The less be evil, the possibility of something good.
Still, a monarch as a member of a dynasty can plan for the distant future, even for generations. In our time, with the globe transformed into an immensely complex scenery, the abyss between Sitka and Syndica, the actual knowledge of voters and candidates compared with the necessary knowledge is unavoidably widening every single day. And since the required knowledge among those active or passive in the democratic process is minute, only sentiments, sympathies, and antipathies, pleasing and unpleasant factors are now effective. Hence, democracies act like rabbits jumping in all imaginable directions into unwanted wars, idealistic crusades, and into undesirable fatal peace arrangements from their childhood. On, monarchs were prepared for their duties. They inherited their profession as traditionally as craftsmen did in the past. The son of a tailor became a tailor and so forth. These tailors proceed to produce passable garments, sometimes bad ones, occasionally even excellent ones, so that with monarchs, yet dentists, lawyers, cobblers, farmers, plumbers, could not have produced any clothes whatsoever, but only sheer monstrosities. Hence, the decline of Europe, lasting already more than 200 years, which also means this one should not forget that the already once aforementioned fact that the monarchy compromised with democracy during the 19th century and acquired merely a psychological role in the 20th. Wars, however, are undesirable in all circumstances. The ideal s solution would be, at present, a dream without any hope of realization would be a germanum of the Christian monarchs such as we have in a Muslim version of Malaysia. Controlling the globe, aware of the fact that wars today, thanks to the developments of technology, chemistry, physics, and biology, have all assumed a suicidal character. They menace the survival of all mankind, which so far has spiritually no common denominator. Neither has the UN nor really the European Union. So far, it can only boast of a common economic unity to become more prosperous and a common defense outside enemies. But without any aggressive drive. Under these circumstances, its coat of arms should be a fat porcupine, a beast fairly safe in its natural surroundings, but certainly not a valid symbol for Europe. Whew, and there we go. There's the end of that one. Number three, monarchies and wars. And I love how he walks you through the histories of the wars from democratic times and monarchical times and how in every instance of every war that ever enter or not enter but involved a democracy that there was always uh that like delineation of kind of summarization of all of the sentiment of the t country that it was in that the the voting populace was always dumbed down to the lowest common denominator in order to continue to fund the war. Like the sentiment of all the populace in a certain area that was going to war was always what the politicians pandered to in order to get them to continue to uh, fund the war. Or I should say bless the war and be like, yes, we need to do this. This has to be done. And is that not what we see today? Like every single war that we've had in the last two decades have been kind of the same thing like it has to have there has to be a politically palpable way for the overwhelming majority of the populace to support the war or the war actually can't really sustain itself and like you could see that with 9-11 you can see that with the mexican uh gulf wars like these wars were always had you know a political palpability that the the politicians that were in order who were only worried about getting elected for the next election were always pandering to the overwhelming mass majority of the people in order to make that happen. And uh, you couldn't really see that in, in monarchical war time because monarchical war time, these people that were actually reigning over these countries, like they would see their countrymen die. And if the overwhelming majority of the people were not for the war, like they had somebody they could go to to be like, hey, like we shouldn't be doing this. We should not have to do this. This person had like the responsibility to his country to maintain the prosperity of his people. Therefore, because his 
reign was going to be passed down to his son and his son's son. So they, they have an incentive in order to maintain that, that, that peacetime. They were, it's just, it's just the vast differences in the two that, you know, democracy always has to divulge to the lowest common denominator of the populace. And in monarchies is the complete opposite is that that can't be leveraged in that because when you create this identity, this nationalistic identity of the people in a democracy, that this is who we are as a whole, and we just forget the individual altogether. Monarchy is like the the individual is at the top of that hierarchy because the individual is the person who rules. But he is very certain that saying for us to return to a monarchical type, uh, uh, I guess, uh, organizational structure would not be the answer so we all know that that can't work either too because then we just have one person who's holier than thou and the rest of us are all the serfs underneath so but i definitely like the differentiation between these two and how it made it possible for democratic institutions always had a greater propensity to go to war and to prolong the wars for longer than they needed to be because of the situation at home, because of the social structure of voting and having these situations made possible, and which was not actually possible in a monarchical uh, power hierarchy. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I just wanted to crank out an episode today. There was definitely had some free time today. Maybe I might get lucky. I might be able to crank one out on Sunday on Father's Day. But I doubt it. I just want to spend time with the family. But maybe for sure Monday. If not Sunday, for sure Monday I'll get something out. Maybe the next chapter, chapter four. But until next time, guys, enjoy.